0: This podcast is sponsored by third-party logistics provider Kane is Able, who works with consumer goods manufacturers and their retail customers to get products to market faster and for less anywhere in the country. Kane provides solutions for labor management, warehousing and distribution, contract packaging and transportation, both asset-based and brokered. Cain improves logistics efficiency for a variety of companies, including food companies that require temperature-controlled storage and transportation. And now, on to the podcast. American ships and crews are far more expensive than their foreign counterparts, Should they even try to compete? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, managing editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. merchant marine? Well, there are plenty of arguments against it. In fact, the U.S. flag fleet has been at risk for decades, playing out a kind of slow death as foreign interests come to dominate the seas and shipyards of the world. Are U.S. laws that protect American ships and shipping just throwing money away? My guest today answers with a firm no. She's maritime and homeland security expert Denise Krepp. Currently a private consultant and professor at the George Washington University and Pennsylvania State University, Krepp served as chief counsel to the U.S. Maritime Administration and special counsel to the general counsel at the U.S. Department of Transportation during the first Obama administration. In this episode, she considers all of the arguments both for and against having U.S. flag merchant shipping and shipbuilding capability. If we continue on the path we're on, she says... The fleet will be dead in ten years. So here is my conversation with Denise Krepp. Denise Krepp, welcome to the program.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: Why do we need an American Merchant Marine?
1: We need an American Merchant Marine because we're a country that exports and imports a significant amount of material, as well as the fact that we have a very strong military. So for commercial reasons and military reasons, we need the men and women who provide the capacity to ship the items that we need.
0: And yet in an article earlier this year, you stated that the U.S. merchant marine fleet will be dead in 10 years, quote unquote. What did you mean by that?
1: I meant that if we keep on going along the path that we are currently on, it will be dead. We have an administration that does not support the U.S. merchant marine, and we don't have as many friends in Congress that we used to have. And unless the path uh, changes, the men and women that we have today won't be there because the work won't be there, because it'll be outsourced to other people.
0: It feels, however, like it has been dying for years. I mean, I, when I first came into this business of writing about shipping, over 30 years ago, one of the first subjects that came up uh, at that time was the death of the American merchant marine. Um, so it's definitely a slow a slow death, isn't it? But is it finally happening uh, once and for all if action isn't taken, in your opinion?
1: Yes. Yes. I, I do. I, I think with um, certain actions taken uh, recently concerning the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and the fact that the majority of the oil that was released was moved on foreign flag vessels, I think the decision by the administration to uh, attempt to write checks instead of providing uh, grain for uh, food aid is another area of concern. And the other issue is that, kind of, you know, we have all of this LNG that's about to come out of the United States. And yet we do not see a strong position taken by the administration that this LNG should be moved on U.S. flag vessels. I mean, you could create a huge number of jobs if you were to say, you know, hey, if you're going to move this LNG out of Louisiana, for example, then it needs to move on U.S. vessels. But they're not saying that.
0: Well, as you point out, it doesn't seem like the Merchant Marine has a lot of friends in Washington right now, but it certainly does seem to have a certain number of enemies. And there are a number of arguments against the continuation of a Merchant Marine, all of which I'm sure you have heard, but I would like you to respond to some of them. Uh, Let's start out with a question of operating subsidies. What are the amount of operating subsidies that are currently being paid out to U.S. ship owners?
1: Well, there are a couple of of different subsidies that occur. you uh, know uh, The Maritime Security Program, there's, I think it's about $3 million per vessel, and it's for 60 vessels. But those vessels help bring materials that the military needs to Iraq and Afghanistan. They're the row rows, they're the uh, container ships. They're vessels that are needed. And uh, these vessels can be used, uh, again, just to provide the materials that the military needs. There's also the uh, cargo preference, and um, up to, well, I think to when the president signs the current piece of legislation, if uh, U.S. vessels were used, for example, by AID to uh, ship grain going to Africa, and if the cost those costs exceeded a certain amount, then uh, AID would be uh, receiving funds from the Maritime Administration to help cover, cover some of the costs. For the differential of shipping between a U.S. flag vessel and a foreign flag
0: vessel? You said about $3 million a ship, just an outright operating subsidy cash outlays, not counting the cargo preference aspects, which I guess are necessary to supplement that because, as I understand it, that 3 or $3.1 million or whatever it is doesn't even cover half the differential between operating an American crewed, American flag ship versus those of uh, ships of other registries. Is that an accurate statement?
1: I can't tell you whether it's half, but I can tell you that it ensures that vessels are available if and when we do need them. These these vessels are also used as training uh, platforms. The men and women who go to the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy train on the MSP vessels. So it's a wonderful opportunity for them to learn what it's like to go out to sea and to go out to sea on a U.S. flag vessel.
0: Well now another th- argument that I have heard is that operating subsidies are just an outright waste of money because they don't accomplish the the purpose for which they are uh, are authorized in other words in those 30 years or several decades that I have been in this business I have seen the death as you have of many American flag subsidized operators you know the list goes on PFEL likes Delta Waterman for whatever reason they all got subsidies and yet they couldn't survive. So what's, what was the problem there?
1: I think the problem is that we don't have a strong maritime strategy. Uh, you know, I, I remember working on the Hill and uh, working on the Safe Port Act, and that occurred when uh, people began to realize that the majority of the uh, port operations here in the United States were owned by foreign operators. And in that case, it was uh, Divide Port World. Um it, you know, and it was very surprising for people to wake up and say, hey, wait a second, uh, you know, our ports aren't operated by Americans? Well, not only are our ports not operated by Americans, but the vessels that are coming into the United States aren't American. And people need to understand that you know, if we are truly to have the capacity when we need it, and we will need it because we're going to go to war again, if, you know, if we may be coming out of uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, but we will go to war again. We need the ability to have U.S. ships, and we need the ability to have U.S. mariners. The, the best example I can give you of why we need this is what happened in Canada about 10 years ago. The Canadians had uh, outsourced their ability to move their tanks. So they had about one-tenth of their tanks on a vessel. Well, the vessel operator refused to give them their tanks because of some contractual dispute. So the Canadian Marines had to land on this vessel in order to get their tanks back.
0: And <laughs> to liberate their own equipment?
1: Yes, they did. And that's crazy. And so for me it's you know, it's very important for us to have control of our tanks. It's very important for me to have for the US and the national security side to have control of any assets that we're going to need in order to fight uh, the battles that we're going to be fighting
0: yeah but i but i have to ask again why are these why did these subsidized carriers the ones that were getting all the preferences under the law and all the money that was allowed them under the law why did they go out of business anyway
1: i don't know i didn't work for them but i can tell you that we need to be talking with everybody now to make sure that those that are still in existence stay in existence mm-hmm. if we don't want to put in a situation where we have to rely on foreign flag carriers to transport all of our items. Yeah. That's crazy.
0: Now, we do have a number of American ships that are actually, if you follow them along the line of management far enough, they are in fact controlled by foreign interests. Uh, lines like APL and Maersk have mm-hmm. set aside a certain number of ships that do get preferences because they are registered in the U.S., Right. Um, The argument that I hear is that on paper, those ships would be available to us in times of national emergency, but there's no guarantee. In other words, if the government of Denmark decided that they didn't want any ships owned by their companies to be part of a particular military action somewhere in the world, they would simply prohibit it. And for all the language that says that those ships would be available to us, they wouldn't be. Um, Same with APL. What if the government of Singapore said, we don't want our ships involved in in an action against China, for instance? And of course, as you know, things are heating up there rather precipitously right now. So how, how do you answer that, that ultimately, even though we have these American units, that they are ultimately controlled by foreign interests who could, with the snap of a finger, simply cut off our access to those ships in time of emergency?
1: I think that's the silliest argument I've ever heard. Mariszk has been a uh, ally of the United States. I mean, the Maersk family sought refuge in the United States during World War II. Their love of this country is so strong that they provided a si- significant amount of money for a couple of exhibits recently at the Smithsonian. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it, to me, that 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 argument is just. It's a non-starter. I, I, I'm not even sure why somebody would even say that. that's their support of the United States with regards to those vessels being available. Those vessels are available. Mm-hmm. They've always been available, and they will continue to be available.
0: In fact, I don't. I, I don't
1: have the doubts that that um, that the individual who's espousing those um, theories has. I, I I think that those are ridiculous theories.
0: In fact, I don't think we have an example to cite. Of a foreign government that prohibited access to a U.S. flagship in time we of don't. emergency, do we? No. Hey, I want to take a moment to tell you about Kane is Able, our podcast sponsor. Kane is able delivers logistics solutions that are specially designed for consumer goods companies and their retail customers. Kane attacks the key drivers of inefficiency in the retail supply chain. To address high labor costs, Kane's innovative workforce management solution spikes labor efficiency ten to twenty percent while improving performance. To bring down final delivery costs, Kane's Retail Consolidation Solution combines your freight with other Kane customers to slash those delivery costs 20 to 35 percent. And to address your need for a flexible, adaptive distribution capability, Kane's coast-to-coast network of shared distribution campuses provides the infrastructure you need while paying only for the space and services your volumes require. Whether your need is distribution, Packaging of transportation, remember, cane is able. And now, back to the podcast. I want to talk about cargo preference, which uh, sure. now is down to, well, it's 100% for military cargoes. But is it, right. it? But for grain and food aid, is it? What is it now at like fifty percent? I'm I'm not clear on, on on what what the level is. In other it's
1: words, dropping down to fifty. Fifty yes.
0: percent is the that that amount of food aid must be carried by American flag vessels, assuming or provided that those vessels are available to carry them. So fifty percent. Yes. Now, the argument against that is that the use of those American flagships, which are quite a bit more expensive to operate, drive up the cost of a food aid project, and what they're doing, it comes directly out of the pocket or directly out of the amount of food aid that can be provided to companies overseas, they get that much less in food aid because it's being funneled to the higher cost of operating the ship. Your response?
1: That's a simplistic argument. The reason we have food aid is because the United States believes in helping others. But in order to help others, you have to pass legislation through Congress. In order to pass legislation through Congress, you need the support of a majority of members. To get a support of a majority of members, you need people to have a vested interest in this. And that vested interest has always been from the maritime side as well as the farmers. So for somebody to say that you could completely strip this out and still get the vote out of Congress, I think is crazy. You're not going to get those votes out because people recognize that if we're going to be spending U.S. tax dollars, then U.S. individuals should be involved in this process. I completely support providing food aid to those who do not have uh, the ability to either grow their own crops or the ability to pay for it. But that support is coming from American taxpayers, and we should be helping them as part of this process.
0: Although, as you point out, there's sort of an end run in progress—an attempt to subvert that by simply converting that food into cash. Where where are we in that uh, effort, which I believe the Obama administration supports?
1: The Obama administration does support it, and it is being currently discussed in the Farm Bill. Um, that proposal is, to me, is just—it's ludicrous. USAID has been criticized by several different inspector generals, their own GAO. And I believe it was the IG for Afghanistan Reconstruction who said, you know, AID is having problems managing the millions that it has. Why would we enable AID to have even more money to mismanage? Instead of AID and others saying that it's going to cost more, my argument is, why don't you clean up the current process to make sure that the millions that you do have is being properly spent?
0: So you feel that it's not being efficiently spent or being improperly spent already in a ways that have nothing to do with the cost of shipping.
1: Absolutely. I mean, if we can clean up that process, I would argue that you could put even more food in children's bellies.
0: Uh, how many American jobs are at stake? If the American merchant marine sank tomorrow, how many jobs would be lost?
1: Well, those jobs are going to be direct and indirect, and I would argue over 40,000 jobs.
0: Direct and indirect, you're combining both in that figure?
1: I, I'm combining both because you've got um, the men and women that are currently out to sea, and then you have all the support services that are provided. And not only support services, but you know that includes shipbuilding. If we don't have U.S. mariners, then we're not going to have U.S. ships. Yeah. If we don't have U.S. ships, then we're not going to have people needed to build those ships, and you're not going to have the parts that are necessary to build those ships as well.
0: Let's talk about shipbuilding. Matson, the carrier in the Hawaiian trades, just ordered two new ships at a combined price of $418 million. Uh, I have heard criticisms, and I'm sure you have as well, claims at least, that if those ships were secured in Asia, they could be bought for about a fifth of that price. Is there that huge a differential in building a ship in the United States and building one overseas in places like Asia? <laughs>
1: Well, when you start talking about those numbers, are we talking about the subsidies that the Chinese government is giving its shipbuilders as well as the subsidies that the Korean government is giving them? I mean, there were articles recently about the Chinese in particular giving more subsidies to their shipbuilders to make sure that they can continue running. And the Chinese are doing this because they want to make sure they're protecting their own jobs. I mean, it makes sense. You don't want people to be out of work,
0: and we uh, we don't give outright construction subsidies anymore, like we used to. It's been years since we had construction differential subsidies. Correct?
1: Yes, I mean we have some small shipyard grants that so usually about ten million a year, but it's nothing compared to what the others are giving.
0: So, what is the state of American shipbuilding today? Do we have the capability in the yards to build these ships? Are they still existing?
1: Well, you have some incredible work that's going on out in Nasco out in San Diego, and some uh, work that's going on with Allen G at uh, in the Aukur facilities in, in Philadelphia. But you have some others that are are um that are having problems down in the Gulf Coast. And I would argue that you know you know, one of the reasons that we became a powerhouse, that we became um or One of the reasons we, we, we are the powerhouse that we are is because of our shipbuilding capacity. I mean that goes back to the early, uh, you know, 1800s when we went out and started uh, exploring, and then you have, uh, you know, the pre-positioning of coal depots so that our ships could go places, and then you have, uh, you know, other decisions that were made by Teddy Roosevelt um, to show the White Fleet, which well, showed the White Fleet that was both a commercial and a military, because people wanted to project. Our sea power superiority. Sea power superiority is directly linked to our national security. And if we're pulling back on our shipbuilding, then we're pulling back on our ability to project our sea power superiority.
0: Of course, we're arguing. We're talking here about non-military sea power, so to speak. Uh, the, well, you know,
1: the, we are. But you know, if, when you start thinking about sea power superiority, it's ability to not only move uh, the military, but it's to move the goods that we're making here in the United States.
0: Let's talk about the Jones Act, which is the right. law that prohibits a foreign flagships or foreign ships from serving in the U.S. domestic and coastwise trade. Here again, we have an argument that the high price of U.S. shipping has essentially made it uncompetitive or almost impossible to enter that trade because operating costs are so high you could never recover those costs through freight rates alone. What's your position?
1: Again, my position is that we should have a U.S. fleet. We should have a U.S. fleet that has the ability to move LNG that we're about to be moving, as well as the ability to uh, provide um, parts and materials to all the wind energy facilities that we're about to create in the Gulf Coast, in Virginia, and out in the the West Coast. I, I think we need these vessels to move back and forth in the United States
0: even in the case of the gulf coast when we had the big bp spill there was controversy about talk about bringing in foreign flagged cleanup vessels to come in and the claim that we didn't have enough american vessels to get the job done that of course was was argued you know aggressively um do you see, like, cracks like that coming up all the time? And, and what is your response to attempts to bring in foreign ships for specialized types of situations?
1: If an emergency happens and we need to do something, I'll be the first one to say we need to make sure that we can address situations. I'm, I, I, uh, You know, and that's a one-off circumstance um, that, you know, for example, the Deepwater Horizon happened. I mean... That was a spill of a magnitude that was unimaginable. And the fact that it kept going and going for months, mm-hmm. that was an insane circumstance. But when you start thinking about things like the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and the release of it, I do think we should be using U.S. Households. I mean, that's something that you know ahead of time and that you can pre-plan for. When you start thinking about the offshore wind facilities, I think we should be um, talking to folks that, uh, that are leasing this and saying the movement between... The U.S. port and that um, entity out in the uh, Gulf is a Joe deck movement. These are things you can think about ahead of time. And that's what I'm saying is if we had a maritime strategy, you put this type of stuff in there and everybody knows what's happening and you can plan for it. But when you don't do that, then you do create problems and you get this perception that the Joe Deck is holding people back. It's not holding people back. But what we have to do, again, is make sure we have a strategy that everybody is aware of and that everybody understands how to operate with that.
0: But you think it is possible to make it work economically? I mean, certainly we do have a number of domestic carriers. We have Crowley in the uh, Puerto Rican trade. We do have Matson in the Hawaiian trade. Um, you think it's economically feasible to operate under the current strictures of the Jones Act?
1: Yes, I do. I, I think you've got a lot of – not only do you have – the Crowleys, but you also have everybody moving in the inland waterways. An amazing amount of um, material is moving up and down the Mississippi. It's moving through the St. Lawrence Seaway. It's moving in the United States. People forget that uh, a lot of these items are coming via the water.
0: And you mentioned yourself the boom in natural gas and the need for LNG carriers. Do we have enough American flag LNG carriers to handle this volume?
1: That's where this, this is going to get very interesting. Uh, you know, I, I was talking to some of the, the shipbuilders, and they said that they're looking to build the uh, vessels to transport LNG from one point in the United States to another point in the United States, but they don't seem to be building uh, carriers so that they could transport LNG, for example, from the Gulf Coast to Japan. So my guess is that the majority of those are going to be moved on foreign flag vessels. If they are moved on foreign flag vessels, it would be my hope that uh, some of those vessels would have U.S. crews on board. There was a great initiative that was passed by Sean Um He was a uh, maritime administrator under President Bush. And this is when we were importing a lot of LNG. And his response was when people came to us and said, hey, you know, we'd, we'd like you to uh, approve our LNG siting application. He said, sure, I'd be happy to do that. But you have to put 25% of your crews, have, or sorry, 25% of your crews have to be American. Well, if Sean can do that for imports, then we should be doing that for exports. So, so FERC and MARAD should be talking to the companies who want to export this and, and say, Well, you are happy to sign your application. But again, you need to be putting U.S. crews on board. Yeah. And I think that's one way that you can get U.S. jobs.
0: Okay, what is the situation in Washington right now? Uh, Is there legislation out there floating either pro or anti-American merchant marine? What is most likely to pass, and what should we be looking at uh, relevant to this topic?
1: Well, I think we should all be looking at what happens with the farm bill. Mm-hmm. and see whether or not they're going to be uh, promoting writing checks or uh, using U.S. Uh, mariners. Those uh, decisions should hopefully be finalized in January, so we'll see that. Then we'll see the budget come out in uh, hopefully late January, early February, and it would be very interesting to see what the Maritime Administration's budget looks like in um, at that point in time. There are a couple of other initiatives that I would... Uh, watch out for on the Maritime side, TWIC, which is a Transportation Worker Identification credential. They still have to do the, uh, the readers, and that regulation is being uh, worked on right now, so that would be on the security side. I would also look um, to what's going on with uh, the Coast Guard. You'll have a new commandant, and be, the change of command will be in May, so that that should be an item of interest for individuals. I think people should always keep an eye out for the grants to see what happens with the Tiger grants that are issued by the Department of Transportation, as well as the Port Security grants that are issued by the Department of Homeland Security. So you have those going on. I think you also, on the maritime side, and this one's going to get really interesting, is on ship recycling. And that's, that's an issue that uh, most people don't... Uh, Don't remember. Most people think that, you know, uh, you make ships, well, you build build ships and then you operate ships, but at some point in time, uh, ships get older and they have to be scrapped. And we do have the scrapping capacity here in the United States, but uh, there's an issue that's happening right now where um, people want to move U.S. flag vessels overseas. And, you know, we talked about the subsidy a little bit ago. Um, We talked about the $3 million per vessel that... uh, Uh, the companies are getting Mm -hmm. well apl receives three million for several years for four vessels and then promptly scrap those vessels overseas my argument is if you're going to get three million dollars per vessel per year then maybe you should scrap those vessels here in the united states
0: well when they when they did scrap the vessels did they give the money back (laughs) <laughs> I guess not. Your no. la- your laugh is the answer.
1: <laughs> no, not only did they not do that, but guess what? The Coast Guard um, is allowing one of their vessels, the Storist, was auctioned off at GSA um, this past summer and is now being scrapped in Mexico, even though there's a possibility that there might be an environmental hazards on board.
0: Yeah. Well, look, there's certainly a full plate of issues to talk about, but I'm afraid we're out of time. But Denise Krepp, thank you so much for making the case for a continuing and strong Amer- American Merchant Marine. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having
0: me today. Hey, a final word from our sponsor, Kane is Able, delivering comprehensive logistics solutions for supply chain execution including labor management, warehousing, and distribution, contract packaging, and transportation. To learn more, visit KaneIsAble.com. That's K-A-N-E-IsAble.com. Or call 888-356-KANE. That's 888-356-K-A-N-E. that was my conversation with maritime industry expert Denise Krepp. Hope you enjoyed the show. I'm Bob Bowman, managing editor of Supply Chain Brain. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast. We're streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch nearly 2,000 videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, At SC Brain. See you next time.